And uh, for this evening, we're going to welcome uh, Elder Sai Stockwell from Pilgrim OPC in Bangor uh, back up to bring the Word of God to us. Well, hello again. Good evening. Wonderful to be here uh, again this evening, worshiping our triune to God together in uh, the truth and the power of the gospel. We are welcomed in, in him. And I'm, I'm very thankful, Seth, that you chose that song. Uh, that was actually going to be uh, my next choice if, uh, of hymn of response. So couldn't decide between the two, but you, you decided it for me. So thank you. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, let's consider God's word now. Let's start with the Old Testament reading. This comes from Isaiah 53. You'll be familiar with this passage. It speaks of a servant, a servant who would one day come and suffer. It's a strange way to characterize a servant, isn't it? A suffering servant. It's a stranger way, it might seem, to characterize our Messiah. But consider together the word of the Lord. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from the prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to, bru to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering, when you make his soul is an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession the transgressors. Turning forward to our New Testament reading, this is our, our sermon text this evening, John 13, verses 1 through 11. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing now you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, uh, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you speak to us. Lord, that your revelation is not closed off to us, but you have given us your revelation word for word. It is your inerrant word. And Father, we thank you that you feed us. You fed your church centuries, millennium after millennium, by your word. And we thank you for this gift now, Lord. We come with expectancy that you will fill our hearts. Help us to see Jesus Christ and his great, unthinkable love for us. We ask this blessing this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1990, there was a movie that came out titled Joe vs. the Volcano. And without getting too much into the plot, it's, it's a movie that starred, uh, starred Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Joe, played by Tom Hanks, is a man who knows that he's about to die. In fact, he knows the exact day he's going to die. And in the knowledge that he has only a limited time left, how does he spend his final days? Well, in the movie, there's an eccentric millionaire that agrees to fund Joe's last days on Earth. And so he spends tons of money on himself. He buys expensive clothes and luggage. He, he, he drives around in a limousine every day. He dines at the most expensive restaurants in New York. In summary, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow I die. Well, in our passage, Jesus knows that he's about to die. His hour that he's spoken of up until now has finally come. It's finally come. His, his entire mission, everything he came to do is coming finally to a focal point at this point. But in Jesus' final hours, we don't find him doing what Joe did. We find him instead eating a meal with his disciples and serving them. It's a very unusual thing to see someone do right before their death, isn't it? 
Why would someone spend their final moments washing other people's dirty feet? What is Jesus communicating to us? Well, in this final moments, Jesus is revealing the nature of his heart toward us and the very nature and the goal of his mission, what he came to do for us. So two things, two points tonight that Jesus shows us about himself. First, we see here the heart, the heart of Jesus's mission. And then secondly, we see the goal of Jesus's mission. So first then, let's take a look at this. What is, what's at the heart of Jesus' mission here? Well, we see in verse 1, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John is laboring by a repetition here to impress upon us in this passage it, the love of Jesus. But why the love? Why didn't he choose other attributes of our Savior? His, his glory. His power. Well, John wants to emphasize that everything Jesus is about to do in going to the cross is motivated by love. By love for his people. It's his love that drives him to the cross. That's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? J.C. Ryle says that the love of Christ to sinners is is the very essence and marrow of the gospel. It's the very heart of his mission. So, let's take a closer look at this love. What do we see in this passage that speaks so profoundly of Christ's love for us? Well, one of the first things we see is that Jesus' love for you is deliberate. It's deliberate. Everything in these beginning verses shows us that what Jesus has been doing and and will be doing is done with a deliberate love. It's intentionally orchestrated. And you see this is in verses 1 and 3, that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. In other words, he knows the beginning from the end. He knows the beginning and the end of his mission because it's planned, it's it's purposeful. In fact, even Satan's desire to undermine and, and uh, Jesus's mission here through Jesus Judas's betrayal ends up being the very means by which he's delivered over to the cross. In other words, the cross is not an accident. Jesus is not walking unknowingly into this, which proves his love all the more. John wants to make it clear to us that as he's heading toward the cross, his love for you is deliberate. He he knows what his mission is, and he knows why he's doing it. There's no question. But we also see here that Jesus' love is deliberate in another way, too. His love is, is specifically and deliberate for his own. What does he mean by this, that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world? Well, at least, of course, it's referring to disciples. We know that. We can figure that out. But it's an interesting phrasing, isn't it? It seems as if he's hinting at something bigger than just the disciples. 
And in fact, I think this phrasing is very reminiscent of John chapter 10, where Jesus is talking about his sheep being distinguished from other sheep. The sheep that know his voice and hear his voice and respond to it. In short, his own is really designating his entire elect people. His entire elect people, those who are the object of his special saving love. Those who have, are, and will be saved. You see, God's saving love is effectual. It it seeks out sinners and it finds them, it brings them to himself. God's love always has an object. It's not vague. It's not ineffective. He's not sending out messages in a bottle, hoping that someone will pick it up. And yes, while Jesus has a love for all of his creation, he does. He has a special kind of love for his people. His love here is deliberate. It's it's intentional in everything he does in this night. He knows what he came to do and who he came to do it for. Sinners, just like you and me. That's who he came to do it for. But we also see Jesus' love is not only deliberate, Jesus' love for you endures. Having loved his own who were in the world. You know, up until this point, let's just think of the disciples for a second. Up until this point, Jesus had loved his disciples faithfully, enduring uh, many kinds of things, right? Their whole ministry, despite their past ignorance and their slowness of heart and mind, He's loved them. Despite all their foolish things they've said and done. Despite their lack of faith and their bumbling attempts to follow him. Does that sound familiar? Despite that they failed to get the point of the gospel. It's interesting, in the the Gospel of Luke, we read that they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest at this supper. When Jesus is about to get down and, and serve them, wash their feet. And he loves them despite what they will do. Scatter and abandon their Savior. Deny him three times. Still, his love endures faithfully, teaching and leading them in truth. A gentle, patient, long-suffering shepherd. And his love endures in the face of suffering. The intense anguish he was about to endure on the cross. Jesus' love for them endures until the very end. I mean, if, if I knew that I was about to undergo the suffering that Jesus was, the unspeakable burden of suffering the wrath of God for sins of his people, compiled from all centuries on his shoulders, I wouldn't want to be with these guys. Or anyone else, I'd just say, please, just give me a little space and time to myself. But not Jesus. It's often said that what is most dear to a person's heart is revealed in their final moments. And what's on Jesus' mind in his heart, suffering in the final hours of his life? You are. Now, I I emphasize that because everyone here, everyone struggles with believing the love of Jesus. 
You know, it's amazing how little we pray because we think so little of the love of God. How suspicious sometimes we can be of, of God's will for our lives because we don't believe his love and his good will toward us. But listen, Jesus' love has already been tested and proven under the darkest and most severe of trials. Jesus' love for you will not fail because it didn't fail you then. It didn't turn away from the cross. And let me ask you this. Do you think that Jesus' heart has changed since he's ascended on high? The, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? The, the same man here that we, we see is now exalted. He's seated on the right hand of the Father in glory, and he came and have, he has the same heart to you now. He sees you. He knows you by name. He knows your inner struggles, and he has the same heart, the same gentle and lowly heart, the same heart that desires to serve, the same heart that washed dirty feet. And he has the same heart ascended on high and power and glory, the one whom the Father has given all things to. I can say with 100% certainty that Jesus' love for you is far greater and deeper than you think it is. The very heart of his mission is love. Now all of this, all of this is like a prelude to what Jesus does next. We've seen the heart of Jesus' mission. We, we are given an answer now to our next question. What's the goal of Jesus' mission? Let me read just verses 4 and 5 again. It says that Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, as many of you know, uh, foot washing was a custom in this day done for the guests of the home. But it was not to be done by the head of the household. It was seen as far too degrading. In fact, there are Jewish slaves who sought beneath themselves to do this. And as you know, in those days, the streets were dirty, dusty. Animals that passed through those streets used it as their open restroom. And mind you, the disciples are not walking around in nice Maine L.L. Bean boots. They're in probably open-toed sandals. So their feet are probably pretty gross. So what do you think the disciples were thinking when Jesus, their, their master, rises from the table and he starts stripping down his outer garment and they stop eating? They're like, what's he doing? And he goes over and he, he ties a towel around his waist. He fetches a basin of water. No, he's not going to. And then he kneels down before them like a common servant, washing their dirty, cruddy feet. And as he's doing this, eventually he comes to Simon Peter, who says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
That's the way we read this. In the Greek, the you and the my are right next to each other in the front of the sentence. You? My? Peter is in total shock at what his teacher, his Lord, and his master is doing. Now, was it wrong for Peter to be shocked? In one sense, no. I mean, remember Peter's confession. He already understood that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And nobody expected a foot-washing Messiah. Nobody expected the Son of God on his knees. Nobody. But Jesus' response to the shock is to patiently explain that, no, Peter, what I'm doing now, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. He knows that what he's doing now won't be completely understood, but he also knows that the cross will be even more vexing to them. Their teacher and their Lord nailed to a cross, bleeding, dying, and gasping for breath. And so, he gives them an illustration the night before so that they would begin to understand what he's doing on the cross. That the one who is like a servant before them now is the suffering servant of Isaiah. Hanging on a cross, despised and rejected by men, smitten by God and afflicted, and that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was Jesus' will to serve as a sacrifice. And so Peter's initial shock, I think, is very understandable and not necessarily sinful. But what he says next is utter indignance. You shall never wash my feet. He's appalled at what Jesus is doing. He recoils from the sight of his Lord and his master on his knees, bent down with a towel around his waist, picking up his dirty feet. This isn't a posture of a Messiah. Jesus, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. Now, you could ask Peter some very probing questions at this point. And you could ask us these same questions. So hear yourself in these. Peter, what was it that you think Jesus came to do? Peter, what do you think the problem was that he came to fix? The evil and the injustice out there? Those, those oppressive Romans? Or was it the evil and the sin in your own heart? The, the, the dark, the giant dark chasm our sin made between us and God. Yes, that problem. Peter, how was he supposed to fix that? Not with a band-aid. What we see here is that Jesus' salvation would cost more than his disciples or you and I could ever imagine. See, here's the thing. When you think little of your debt to God then what Jesus is doing here would seem foolish, out of place. When you don't think your sin is serious, then the cross seems unnecessary. And so, this is important. When you don't understand your true need before God, you won't understand his mission. Which is why Jesus clarifies for Peter, no, Peter, if, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, you and I know how loaded those words are, right? You know that because they're words that point to the work on his cross, the following. Now, Peter 
and his disciples need to be washed by Jesus. That's, of course, what Jesus is saying. They need to be washed by his blood shed for them on the cross. And so the question that's being put to Peter now is whether he's prepared to receive a Messiah that would serve him. Because here's the thing. If Peter's not okay with Jesus washing his feet, he's not going to be okay with Jesus dying on the cross for him. A far more degrading thing than washing someone's feet. To bear the sins of of all his people. To be humiliated, tortured. If he can't accept washing his feet, he is not going to accept Jesus on the cross. But that's exactly what Peter needs. That's what you and I need. We need our sins to be washed by the blood of Jesus. And and notice what this washing is for. Jesus is very clear that this washing is essential to having a share with him. You see, forgiveness isn't given so that we can just go on our merry way and keep living the life we were before. No, forgiveness is ultimately about reconciliation with God. Right? So that we can be adopted into his family, we can be united to Jesus Christ, so that we can have fellowship and communion with the living God. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, if you're not washed and forgiven and justified, you won't have any share or part with me. Now, in light of this, we need to be asked here, are there ways in which you say, Jesus You will never serve me. Jesus' answer, I think, especially confronts our self-sufficiency. It's amazing how uncomfortable we can be when we need others to serve us, isn't it? We're embarrassed about our neediness, about our dependence. And sometimes, sadly, pride can take very subtle forms, dressed up like humility. Oh, you don't need to do that. Jesus says, yes, I do. I do need to do this. Brothers and sisters, you need to be served by the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be served by him. Your answer needs to be to him, yes, wash me, Savior, or I die. And so you see, Jesus is saying something about his mission. His response to Peter's indignance is, Peter, this is exactly what I came to do. And in fact, that's what he already told him earlier. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's interesting also to read our passage alongside uh, Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant tying a towel around his waist, getting the basin in the water, kneeling down. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so you see, we all enter the kingdom of God at the high cost of another, at the service of another. There is no other way into the kingdom of God than to be served by the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly what he's illustrating for them here. And so what does Peter do next in response? 
Well, <laughs> it's typical Peter, right? Well, well, Lord, not my feet only, but all my hands and my head. You gotta love Peter, don't you? He's 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 passionate. He's impulsive. But Jesus gently clarifies something about his washing. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely cleaned. And and you are clean, but not every one of you. And so Jesus uses Peter's response as another teaching moment. He hints that the kind of washing he's about to accomplish on the cross uh, does not need to be repeated. If you get your feet dirty, you don't need to take a bath again. When our sins are paid through the washing of Jesus' blood, it's done. It's finished. And so, Jesus says to the disciples that they, of course, except for Judas, who is distinguished, are already clean because they responded to him in faith. That's how they receive this cleansing, by faith. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that what Jesus is about to do on the cross is unnecessary, No, the only reason why he can call them cleansed is because of what he's about to do. A cleansing that does not need to be repeated. But what about this clause? Except for his feet, it says in the ESV. What about this clause? What does this mean? Well, Jesus using his, he uses his foot washing illustration now in another way. It's not surprise he uses it even in another way after that as he calls them to serve one another. He uses it in multiple ways. And here he says that although you don't need to bathe again because of his, his washing, there is another kind of ongoing cleansing that Jesus needs to do in us. Not in the sense of our justification, as if it's somehow complete, incomplete or something. But no, as we walk with our feet, through the sin and the depravity of the world, we need to be regularly washed and cleansed from our fleshly desires that resemble the world. I mean, I can still feel sin at work in me, don't you? And until the Holy Spirit completely transforms our sinful nature in glory, we need this ongoing renewal and work of Jesus' Spirit purifying our hearts. Calvin says here that Christ always finds in us something to cleanse. What is here spoken of is not the forgiveness of sins, but the renewal by which Christ, by gradual and uninterrupted succession, delivers his followers entirely from the sinful desires of the flesh. So you see, at first, Jesus is washing his feet, and that illustration there is given about our justification, our cleansing. But now, he's using as a picture of our sanctification, of our, a kind of inner cleansing that needs to happen in us daily. And this shows us, of course, that you and I need to continually be served by Jesus. Continually. He has not stopped serving us after the cross. We are dependent on him every single hour. Which, again, I have to say, confronts our self-sufficiency. A self-sufficient Christian says, thank you so much, Jesus. I love everything you did for me. I love dying on the cross for me, but now I've got it from here. I think this is actually, sadly, why the self-help industry in the church is still so popular. 
Yeah, I know I need Jesus, but, but just tell me what to do. Give me ten steps to be a better Christian so I can just go and do it. But see, when we sing this well-known line that grace has led me safe thus far and grace will lead me home, it implies that we understand that from beginning to end, Jesus will need to serve us. He'll need to attend to all our weaknesses every hour and provide us with strength, endurance to not be delivered into temptations and evils to wash and and cleanse us from our lusts, our doubting, our perpetual selfishness and, and pride. So I ask you, what is it that keeps you seeing the heart of Christ or letting him serve you? Is it pride? Is it self-sufficiency? Is it doubting of his love? Look to Jesus here. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. He has come to serve you, to wash you, to cleanse you. That's the very heart and goal of his mission. Jesus loved you until the very end, brothers and sisters. And so I want to close with these words of Jesus, words that he said after He endured the cross. He gives the great commission, and he says this, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us now, serving and loving us until the end of the age. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We praise you for the gospel that you've given us in your son, Jesus. Lord, we need to be served. Before we cannot talk about doing an obedience which is necessary, Lord, we still need to talk about being served by the Lord Jesus, always and forevermore. Give us hearts that are humble to receive him, to look to him to cast apart our, uh, off our weaknesses so that we can come to him, Lord, our, our dependencies, Lord, on him. May we be strengthened in him and look to him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.